Hello and welcome to the second episode of AP World History, an overview. I am Sydney and this is Period 2. So in this episode, instead of doing the overview and then going over the key concepts, um, we're going to do the key concepts while we're doing the overview, so we're going to link all of that together. So, the first key concept is Key Concept 2.1. It says, as states and empires increased in size and context between regions intensified, human communities transformed their religious and ideological beliefs and practices. Um, so, this key concept is going to deal a lot with new religions and new beliefs and philosophical systems. Um, So Key Concept 2.1.1 deals a lot with what we already talked about in the last period. Um, It says that codifications and further developments of existing religious traditions provided a bond among people and ethical code to live by. And 2.1.1a talks about uh, Judaism and basically how... um, the Jewish diasporic communities developed because of Roman Empire's conquests, Assyrian conquests of Jewish states at different times. And this is getting back to what I talked about um, in the first episode about the diaspora and how Jewish people sort of had to set up communities um, all over the world and did that by creating synagogues. And when I say around the world, I sort of mean more of the Mediterranean and the Middle Eastern areas. Because again, right now, the world is not completely interconnected yet. Um, Key Concept 2.1.1b talks about the Vedic religion and how it developed into Hinduism, which we already talked about. Um, The Vedic age set the framework for the manifestations of Brahmin teachings about Dharma and reincarnation, and they contributed to the rise of the Hindu caste system. So like I said, um, in the Vedic age, social structures arise, and Hinduism um, really stratified those social classes, and that created the caste system. So that's how existing religious traditions um, further developed during this time period. But Key Concept 2.1.2 gets into new belief systems and cultural traditions emerge and spread. So now we have an emergence of a ton of new beliefs. Um, And one of these belief systems was Buddhism. So Key Concept 2.1.2.A is the core beliefs preached by the historic Buddha and collected by his followers in sutras and other scriptures were, in part, a reaction to the Vedic beliefs and rituals dominant in South Asia. Buddhism branched into many schools and changed over time as it spread throughout Asia, first through the support of Mauryan Empire Ashoka, and then through the efforts of missionaries and merchants and the establishment of educational institutions to promote Buddhism's core teachings. Um, So that's kind of a mouthful, so let me break that down a little bit more. So Buddhism rose after 700 BCE as an alternative to Vedic religion. Um, The person known as the Buddha, or his name originally is Siddhartha Gautama, um, he 
achieved enlightenment where he was like under a tree and you can like see this picture of him like achieving this enlightenment um, if you just like google it and achieving enlightenment is different than achieving the Hindu moksha because anyone can achieve enlightenment what they have to do though is they have to follow the four noble truths which is one life is suffering Two, suffering arises from desire. Three, the solution to suffering lies in curbing desire. And four, desire can be curbed if a person follows the Eightfold Path. Now, I'm not going to read you everything of the Eightfold Path, but it's basically um, a view, aspirations, speech, conduct, livelihood, mindfulness, and medita- meditation. So achieving all those things, if a person does all those things, they can achieve enlightenment. Um, You may also see enlightenment called nirvana, and that really is just the release from reincarnation cycle, and you achieve that tranquil state. So very similar to what the Hindus believed, but anyone could achieve this. Um, Now, part of the key concept talked about how Buddhism spread, and changed over time and Buddhism really started to become pretty major when the Mauryan Emperor Ashoka started to spread Buddhism. So Ashoka he originally had a very militaristic empire and after a brutal conquering um, he realized what he had caused and he converted to Buddhism and began to preach nonviolence, morality, moderation and religious tolerance and he publicized this throughout his empire by inscribing edicts on great rocks and polished pillars throughout his empire um also as buddhism spread as we see period three it spread into china one of the things that kind of made it you know more adaptable was the bodhavistas and these were said to be people who achieve enlightenment, but are reborn to help others on their path. So in some types of Buddhism, you don't know who the Bodhavisas are, and in some you do. But basically, these people are there to, like, they know how to reach enlightenment. They've done it themselves, but instead of going into that, you know, eternal kind of rest, they come back to earth and they help other people and the adaptability i was talking about that arose with mahayana buddhism so the bodhavistas are included with that especially as um it spread and like the buddha depiction as chinese in china that helped chinese people accept buddhism as a major religion okay so Um, B of that key concept is Confucianism's core beliefs and writings originated in the writings and lessons of Confucius. They are elaborated by key disciples, including rulers such as Wudi, who sought to promote social harmony by outlining proper rituals and social relationships for all people of China. So that key concept deals with Confucianism. And a lot of things to do with Confucianism is very important throughout this period and to do with a lot of things in China. So throughout this episode, you're going to keep hearing 
things arise to do with Confucianism. So I'm not going to go all over all of them now, but you will continue to hear about it. Um, but basically, Confucianism is a philosophy. It's actually not a religion, and it's an emphasis on hierarchy and duty. So it's that a system for Chinese civilization. Um, Confucius sayings were handed down at first orally, but then by the Analects and Book of Documents and the Book of Songs. And Confucianism was basically an effort to get back to what um, the Chinese saw as the Golden Age or the early Zhou period, and we're going to go over the Zhou Dynasty in a minute. And in Confucianism, family is fundamental to society. So yeah, that emphasis on hierarchy, um, age, and gender, and duty is very strong. Um, some things like filial piety and ancestor veneration are huge parts of Confucianism, but again, we are going to talk about that a little bit later. Um, same with Wudi, he was mentioned in a key concept. We're going to talk about him when we talk about the Han Dynasty, which was a prosperous dynasty in period two during this, uh, in China. Um, and key concept 2.1.2.C, we move on to Taoism. So in Taoist writings, the belief of balance between humans and nature assumed that the Chinese political system would be altered indirectly. And Taoism influenced the development of Chinese culture. So this originated in the Warring States period, and it urged withdrawal from formalities hierarchies and distractions. Um, Laozi, he was the creator and he made the fundamental text through classic way of virtue, ambiguity, paradox, and hints of truth. So basically he just kind of took out all the things that made society what he thought like kind of negative and really stressful and took that all away. Um, yeah, he argues that education and rationalism are obstacles to understanding and that the primal world was the happier place, which some people could still make that argument today. Um, and he, you know, Taoism really emphasizes a tranquil existence, a retreat from stress and obligation, which I would really love to have right now. Um, but yeah, one does not choose to act. One does not use to choose to fear death. One just focuses on themselves and they live in harmony with nature. And kind of like the philosophy of this was like the typical Chinese scholar should be a Confucianism at work and the Taoist at, in their home and in their own privacy. Taoism also had a strong influence on Chinese culture. Um, and that can be seen through like medical theories, poetry, and architecture. Um, so D of this key concept moves on to Christianity and Europe. So the core beliefs of Christianity were based on the teachings, divinity, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth as recorded by his disciples and drew on Judaism as well as Roman and Hellenistic influences. Despite initial Roman imperial hostility, Christianity spread through the efforts of missionaries, merchants, and early saints through many parts of Afro-Eurasia and eventually gained Roman imperial support by the time of Emperor Constantine. Um, so this key concept incorporates a lot 
Um, right now, we're going to talk about just Christianity and a little bit about Emperor Constantine. And then later, we can going to get into like the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire. So, Christianity originated with Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. He claimed to be the son of God and was sent to lead the Christians. He was the Messiah. Um, however, this directly opposed the Roman emperor since at this time he was said to be the son of God and there can't be two sons of God. Um, and the Roman emperors were Jewish at this time. Um, so Paul, he was a prophet and he used his Roman citizenship to travel and spread Jesus's word. Um, and he gained a lot of followers because of like the harshness of Roman rule. So this allowed Christianity to sort of like begin to take off. But really, you know, things were really bad for people who followed Christianity in the Roman Empire until Emperor Constantine. So he reunited the Roman Empire, which we're going to talk about, um, but that's for later. And he moved the capital to Constantinople. Um, he adopted Christianity because he claimed he saw a cross before he won a key battle and then issued the Edict of Milan, which ended Christian persecution and guaranteed freedom of worship for Christians. And now many people in the Roman Empire converted to Christianity since the empire was now centered on this. So Christianity was this brand new belief system that arose in Europe during this time. Um, e of this key concept is that Greco-Roman religious and philosophical traditions offer diverse perspectives on the study of the natural world, the connection to the divine, and the nature of political power and hierarchy. Some of these perspectives emphasize logic, empirical observation, and scientific observation. So, during this time, the Greeks were some of the most rational people and had the most uh, modernized way of thinking. You know, they were able to separate their knowledge from their opinion and were the ones to get a real grasp on the real world. Um, so, the cultural change kind of emerges in the city of Athens because this was a center of learning and science and democracy. So I think a lot of you probably know about the ancient Greeks. And yeah, like they were pretty advanced thinkers for this time. Um, there were some pretty famous philosophers and Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle. And they, you know, thought a lot about the natural world, thought it could be explained through philosophy and reason. Um, again, also the world can be explained through science. And these ideas eventually spread through the Middle East by Alexander the Great. As he conquered, he spread Greek ideas, which we're going to talk a little bit more about later. Finally, the last part of Key Concept 2.1.2 is F. It says, arts and architecture reflected the values of religions and belief systems. So we sort of already talked about Hinduism reflecting this. But if you go and look at um, 
arts and architecture during this time, they're all going to reflect the religions and beliefs that were there during this time. So Buddhist art and architecture, uh, Christian art and architecture where the Roman Empire used to be, Greco-Roman art and architecture, okay? If you go to Greece, you can still see all of the things that were built during this time that reflected um, these belief systems. So now on to key concept 2.1.3. Belief systems generally reinforce existing social structures while also offering new roles and status to some men and women. A. Confucianism emphasized filial piety. Um, This is a very important part of Confucianism. Um, Filial piety is basically... Um, that the children in the home kind of like obey the adults in the home. Um, the, it's the duty of the children to the parents and they have to be obedient to them and love them. And this conduct in the home prepared young people for devotion to the ruler. So how they treated their parents is, was believed to how they treat their ruler and how they're going to be in society so that was why this was really pushed in confucian societies like these were the building blocks of society kids learned this at home and then they already knew kind of how to live how to be when they left however um, patriarchy is still enforced in this because the fathers held the absolute authority Um, so while this includes the parents, um, the male head of the household had all the authority and the children had to have the most duty, the most obedience to him. The next part of this key concept B is that some Buddhists and Christians practiced a monastic life. So this is the part of religion where you seclude yourself away from the society to really focus on the religion itself. So this happened in both Buddhism and Christianity, um, originated in Buddhism. So, for example, monks would build monasteries away from civilization. This like allowed people to escape and devote their life to this religion. Um, interestingly, like to me at least, this is one of the few places women could be free from male control and most of the patriarchy. Um, in monasteries, um, women and men were seen as pretty equal, which, again, like even for these religions during this time, was very uncommon. Um, people could break free of their social class when they joined a monastery. And, you know, in Christian, Christian monasteries, this is very similar. Um, There's definitely that devotion to Christian celibacy and the uh, continual devotion to prayer. But yeah, in both of these places, in both of these um, systems, either if, you know, Buddhist or Christian, um, you really devoted your life to learning and teaching that religion. Christian monasticism also preserved ancient Latin works, which was pretty interesting I think. Um, The last part of key concept 2.1 is four 
other religions and cultural traditions continued and in some places were incorporated into major religious traditions. So shamanism, animism, and ancestor veneration continued in their traditional forms in some instances and in others were incorporated into other religious traditions. So let's start with shamanism and animism. So animism is that places and creatures have a spiritual essence and spirits inhabit the natural world. So in this time in Asia, you know, people would believe that that tree has a spirit in it. This place could have a spirit in it. That mountain has a spirit. So all of the natural things um, people believed were actually spirits. And shamanism, so during this time, shamans would restore health and balance to the Hmong body and soul. So the Hmong people believed this. And the shamans would navigate the spiritual world to treat disease cases. So instead of kind of what the Greeks thought and more like modern thought and Western medicine, um, these people spiritually treated their diseases. Um, The cure for diseases were when the shaman would retrieve the lost or the captured soul by performing a special ritual. So it was almost like, equivalent of the devil would capture someone's soul and the shaman would come and they had to negotiate for your soul um if you're chose as a shaman it begins with a very unusual illness you have to look to the spiritual world for training and interestingly a lot of shamans specialize in the original illness that they had um yeah, the shamans, they determine your soul status and they engage in negotiation with spirits for your soul. So that um, tradition continued and were even incorporated into major religious traditions um, in like in China. Um, ancestor veneration also continued. And we haven't talked about that yet, but that is a big part of Confucianism. Um, ancestor veneration is great respect for ancestors who have passed away. So in China, the dead are honored. Um, it helps shape the Chinese culture. Like the dead are a huge part of one's life. Um, shrines were kept and families as a whole were seen as a unit between the living and dead. So now when you sort of think about families, you only think about living people. Um, but with this, it is a connection between both worlds. Um, and ancestor veneration carried the, the belief that souls lived on after death. And one could seek advice and praise from their ancestors. Um, yeah, so that continued in China and were, in, was really incorporated into the Confucianism traditions. So just a little review of that. Key Concept 2.1 is basically all about belief systems and starts with the continuation of beliefs from period one, such as um, Judaism and Hinduism, and then also gets into some of the new belief systems that arose in period two in the world, such as Buddhism, um, Taoism, Confucianism. Remember Confucianism um, when we talk about filial piety and ancestor veneration. Those are beliefs of Confucianism. Um, we also have Christianity, 
and just the Greco-Roman beliefs and rationalization, as well as shamanism and animism. So yeah, just remember those big things for Key Concept 2.1. Now moving on to Key Concept 2.2, as the early states and empires grew in number, size, and population, they frequently competed for resources and came into conflict with one another. So here's where we're going to cover a lot of our civilizations and empires in period two. So key states and empires that grew included in Southwest Asia, the Persian empires. So sort of think like the Middle Eastern region for where the Persian empire was located. So the first Persian empire I want to talk about is Achaemenid and um, basically, all you need to know about that is that it was eventually conquered by Alexander the Great when he was um, spreading his Hellenistic influences. One of the places he conquered was the Achaemenid Empire in Persia. Um, also, you can know that Persopolis was one of the most famous sites in this empire. Um, Parthian, that replaced Alexander the Great's Hellenistic Empire, so after um, that his empire fell, the Parthian Persian Empire replaced that. And then finally, the Sassanian Empire, um, what you need to know about them is that their main religion was Zoroastrianism. So in the Persian Empire, um, that was where Zoroastrianism was really popular. But as time went on, Islam slowly took over. So Islam developed in period three, and that became a very major religion in this area. Um, after it arose. The decline of the Persian Empire, we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but just specifically to them, um, they tried to invade Greece and that failed, but they spent a ton of money on their army. So that led to economic catastrophe because they didn't get any benefits from doing that. And then they lost um, their defense. So they were easily able to be taken over by other uh, empires. The next um, empires listed are the Qin and the Han empires, but I actually want to talk about the Zhou Empire before we talk about those, or the Zhou Dynasty. Um, so the Zhou Dynasty, they had a book of documents and songs that provided glimpses into subjects' lives, so this is something that people found later, and we were able to learn a lot about how people lived during this time. Um, King Wu, he was the leader, and he distributed territory to his relatives and his allies to ensure their loyalty. Um, the Duke of Zhou, um, he was the ideal ruler and really selfless and returned the rule when the time came. So he was this idea of the perfect ruler. Um, their cities were laid out, aligned with the North Star. And the major buildings faced south. So they were very organized in how they formed their cities. Um, feng Shui, uh, that's the book of change that's illustrated patterns of religious practice. Um, and they had a strong belief in Feng Shui. Um, they also did a lot of horseback riding. And their bronze weapons developed through common warfare. So as they fought, uh, their weapons developed more and more. Um, but what's really important about the Zhou dynasty is they are the ones that introduce the mandate of heaven. And this is maintained throughout a lot of the Chinese dynasties. 
Um, so this is that heaven grants power to the ruler of China. So King Wu declared that heaven granted authority and legitimacy to a ruler as long as he looked out for the welfare of his subjects. So if he did not do that, um, the world would actually give some natural signs such as flood and famine. But if the ruler ignored this, then heaven could withdraw and transfer power to another more worthy ruler. Um, so basically heaven was in charge of who ruled China. And this kind of provided proof of the divine favor and stability in China. Um, now for the Qin Dynasty, um, as well as we can talk about the Warring States period here. So the Warring States period was an intense warring and rivalry between states after the Zhou Dynasty fell and before the Han Dynasty came to life. Um, and the Qin were the most innovative because before the Warring States period, they had had a high exposure to barbarian attacks. So they were very experienced in fighting. Um, they employed hardy farmers and a large, highly trained military. And they were basically able to, I guess, win this period and establish themselves as a dynasty. Um, they were the first to practice legalism, which made them very powerful. And they began constructions on the Great Wall of China to protect from outside things. Um, and so legalism is that is the belief that humans are bad and prone to misbehave. Um, so in the Qin, they had strict laws, uh, strict rulers, and really strict punishments. Um, and they believed that this was required in order to ensure the order and the safety of the subjects. So since they thought human nature was to be bad, they thought they had to be this strict so that the subjects would be loyal to them. And legalism arose in China, and it's sort of very different from the Confucian ideology. It's, um, Confucianism was based on the idea that humans were inherently good and that they would make the right decisions. And legalism is basically the opposite of that. Humans are bad, and they need to have very strict um, parameters put in place for them. So legalism was almost... And uh, Confucianism, they sort of challenged each other and their philosophies. And now for the Han Dynasty of China. This was the last dynasty of China in period two until we moved to the Sui in period three. Um, but the Han Empire had a hereditary emperor, and this person held all the power. And again, this person was selected by the Mandate of Heaven, historical trend in China. Um, Han Wudi, he was a very famous leader of the Han Dynasty because he really elevated it to its height and um, he used aspects of legalism from the Qin but also or mostly provo promoted Confucianism. So Confucianism was a big part of the Han Dynasty. Um, the Han Dynasty was divided into 99 kingdoms and each of those was ruled by the emperor's family or another powerful family. So again, everything is kind of hereditary. Um, this helped keep law and order and also make sure tax was collected throughout the empire. Um, also, men are seen as superior to women in this empire. Again, a continuing historical trend. Um, something new about the Han Empire is they had 
gentries, who were wealthy landowners and merchants selected to run the bureaucracy. And these were like actually like really elite people, um, really, you know, mostly pretty high up in society. Um, and this, these people were selected by the civil service exam. So your score on the civil service exam uh, determined your position and determined if you could serve in the Han bureaucracy. Um, however, it is easier to become a gentry if your family also has gentries. So this system is pretty hereditary and I would say a little bit rigged because if you, if you didn't have gentries in your family or you came from a really poor family, uh, odds are that you're not going to make it into the bureaucracy even if you do well on the exam, but you won't do well on the exam because you have nothing to study from, nothing to do well with. Um, there's also a couple things in the Han Emperor like Shang An and then the Xiongnu, which were the pastorals group that attacked them and almost uh, also the White Huns and caused them to fall. Um, but we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Okay, so now for our South Asian empires, our Mauryan and our Gupta Empire. So the Mauryan Empire came first. And Alexander the Great kind of paved the way for the Mauryan Empire because when he invaded that area and tried to take it over, Chandragupta Maurya, he united all of the peoples there into an army and they were actually able to defeat Alexander the Great because they had a really strong army and they had elephants. So anyways, they were able to defeat him and then they were unified. So Chandragupta Maurya was able to unify all of those people. And then after that, he was able to run a really centralized government. So Chandragupta Maurya was the first ruler and he um, really unified them. Um, Ashoka, he is a Mauryan emperor as well. Uh, we talked about him earlier about how he spread Buddhism and how it really became... Uh, major when he accepted it, um, but he also ran a organized bureaucracy in the Mauryan Empire. So he did, he is remembered as one of the greatest rulers of the Mauryan Empire. And now for the uh, Gupta Empire, um, this is very different from the Mauryan Empire because the governing was actually done by the local powers instead of the centralized government. So they actually had a very decentralized government. And, but this actually led to political stability. This, this tactic really worked in the Gupta Empire. Um, and they are known for their science and culture they did, developed while they were there. And they also used some Vedic and Hindu traditions. So the main religion in the Gupta Empire was actually more Hinduism than it was Buddhism. And that was when Ashoka, because the Mauryan, the Gupta kind of took over the, the Mauryan Empire. Um or the Gupta came, at, sorry, the Gupta came after the Mauryan Empire. Um, and basically the decline, again, we'll talk about this like all-encompassing of the um, classical age empires, but basically uh, the Gupta, the because of the decentralization, um, there ended up being a refusal to pay taxes, which led to an increase in taxes. And since there wasn't a centralized government, um, the government couldn't force uh, the taxes on people. Um, yeah, and then this just ended up being like really weak governing, and again, foreign invasions from those pastoral groups from Central Asia, especially the Huns, 
that really led to the fall of some of these empires. Uh, next, for our Mediterranean region, um, we already talked about Phoenicia a little bit in the um, in period one, and you don't need to know a ton about that. Really, just that they were like the original like kind of city states on the Mediterranean, the original traders there. Um, the Greek city states. Um, basically, you just know, like, Athens and Sparta. So Athens was the center of, like, learning and science and democracy in Greece, while Sparta was more militaristic. And then we talk about Greek rationalism and, like, kind of their belief systems in the Greek uh, city-states. Um, Alexander the Great, he is actually Macedonian, but he um, used something called the phalanx to conquer um, and unite the Greeks. Well, he united the Greeks and then he conquered other territories. So he conquers the Persians, which I mentioned before, and he sets up the Greek Hellenistic Empire. However, he could not conquer India as Chandragupta Maurya. Uh, he united the Indian peoples to form the Mauryan Empire. But Alexander the Great spread Hellenistic influences throughout Europe when he was doing all of his conquering. Because even though he's Macedonian, he really believed in what the Greeks were teaching and really uh, liked their teaching. So he spread those beliefs. Uh, now for the uh, Roman empires. Um, so in the Roman Republic, that's when Rome had a pretty representative government. So they had the Senate, which is like was, was made up of the top of the class patricians Um when I say, like, democratic government, I mean, it's still only, like, top-class men, you know, I mean, it's not, like, everyone, <laughs> of course, um, and then the consuls were two patricians that were each elected to a two-year term to serve in the government, In the assembly, uh, they appointed the consuls, and only males could vote, and patrician votes counted twice, so if you were a plebeian, if you are a lower class, your vote doesn't even count nearly as much as patricians if you even got to vote. Um, however, um, Julius Caesar, he took over control, um, he decided to make the government, uh, autocratic and run it himself. He decides he is a god after he met Cleopatra. Um, however, he was stabbed because citizens believed he was breaking apart the Republic, which he was. <laughs> um, however, uh, this kind of led to the rise of the Roman Empire, um, Augustus Caesar and the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire actually conquers everyone under um, this kind of form of government, and Europe begins to experience Pax Romana, which we're going to talk about in a minute, I think. Um, however, the government now only holds the illusion of being democratic. So while citizens may feel they have some participation, um, the power actually rested solely with the princeps or solely with the empire. So the Senate was only like an advisory council at this point. So while kind of Rome was able to thrive and conquer a lot and really expand, um, a lot of people lost the rights that they had in the Roman Republic. Um, however, and Roman, the Roman Empire declined and split into West and East Rome, and we know what happened there. In East Roma, Constantine kind of reunited them and moved the capital to Constantinople to create the Byzantine Empire, which we're going to talk about in period three. 
um, and they were pretty prosperous for a while, while West Rome really fell into the Dark Ages. We're going to talk about that later, but yeah, anyways, this, the Roman Empire, eventually had to split. And actually, I forgot to mention, in the Roman, um, well, the Roman Republic, kind of, in a little bit of the Roman Empire, um, there was a lot of conflict between the Patricians and the Plebeians. The Plebeians, you know, they were the majority, and they believed that they should have more say. Um, and this resulted in something called the Twelve Stone Tablets, which served as a check on officials. Um, however, uh, to my knowledge, the Plebeians really never got that um, equality with the patricians in the council system. And again, this changed to the Roman Empire pretty soon and then only held the facade of being democratic. The Romans were also pretty advanced kind of for their time. Um, they had a lot of trade and communication and a really strong military at this time. And they also used the like aqueducts to, um, to aid in agricultural production. So just kind of keep that in mind that during this period, the Roman Empire was was really at its height and really, really was doing a good job. So, And actually, I said we were going to talk about this later, but apparently later is now. So actually, um, let's talk about Pax Romana now. Um, this refers to the time period of Roman peace. And this was from 27 BCE to 180 CE in the Roman Empire. And basically, this was a ton of peace because the Romans had conquered everyone, so everyone was on the same page. Um, un- this was under the reign of Augustus Caesar, and the empire expanded until everyone had been conquered. So, yeah, there was really no conflict because everyone was Roman at this point. Um, obviously, as we know, Europe splits up into a lot of different places, but right now, um, it's, it's Roman. So there's also a lot of economic trade and facilitation during this time because trade was really easy because this was all the same empire. So this wasn't, you know, trade between two different places, even though it was a pretty large space of land. Uh, this was trade between one place. So go- goods could move pretty freely in the Roman Empire. Um, now let's talk about Mesoamerica and some of the empires that emerged there. And remember, these places here had absolutely no connection with some of the empires over in Afro-Eurasia. So some of those were starting to be connected through trade routes like the Silk Road and the Indian Ocean trade, um, all of those that we're going to get into later. Um, but these, there was no trade routes to the Americas yet. This is, doesn't happen until period four. So these places over here did not have Afro-Eurasia to trade with, and likely during this period, they, uh, the two groups of people did not know each other were even there. Um, so in Mesoamerica, we have uh, Teotihuacan. Um, this is a very large city for its early time. Um, it had a hundred thousand. It had a hundred thousand inhabitants, and its largest building was the Pyramid of the Sun, which was a kind of uh, religious building. Um, in the cities, there were like religious centers and the priests held the most elite status. Uh, these cities were polytheistic, um, architecture, uh, was made to worship things like the sun and moon and Quetzalcoatl, which was like the source of agriculture and arts. He was believed to be like a god. 
Um, something different about this, and again, something that happens more in Mesoamerica, is that human sacrifices were necessary to please the gods. And we're going to talk about that more with like the Aztecs, but that is something uh, very different that happened in the Americas that did not happen anywhere else. Um, Teotihuacan was ruled by a group of families with political authority, and they were the first to use chinampas, which were these like agricultural, I don't like, I don't want to say boats, but but like they f- were on water and you could grow like a year round food supply because of the way these things were built. Um, and this also led to specialization of labor, which allowed for all the beautiful architectural buildings that we know of today that they built. Um, okay, so now for the Mayan uh, civilization or city states. Uh, and this is the continuity into period three, but we're going to talk about it now um, because this was. 200, uh, sorry, 2600 BCE to 1697 CE. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's, a, that's a large continuity right there. Um, so this was located in the Yucatan Peninsula, as well as Honduras and Guatemala. However, these city-states never unified into a single empire. Um, they used irrigation and terrace farming. Um, they achieved high agricultural yields by draining swamps and then building um, elevated fields. Um, these people really had remarkable architectural and cultural achievements. So they built all of these temples and created rituals that linked the power of the king to the gods. Uh, they had open plazas, high pyramids, and carved really colorful, beautiful, elaborate decorations into buildings. Um, they also carved altars and monoliths. And what's really, really impressive about this is they did all of this without the wheels or metal tools. They did not have some of the advanced technologies that people in Afro Eurasia had. Okay. They did all of this, you know, with very primitive, I guess, you know, ways of doing these things. And a lot of things with their hand or just with like other rocks and that makes their achievements when you see the things just so amazing. Um, they believed in a sacred tree. Um, the roots were like the underworld and the branches were like heaven. Uh, the rulers were both priestly and political. So again, kind of divine connection to power. Um, they communicated with supernatural residents as well as infused war with religion. That's what these rulers did. Um, women actually played a central role in religious rituals in the home. So while this is in the home, um, them playing a central role is sort of different, uh, because in a lot of other places, patriarchy is very, very, very strong right now. Um, again, these, the Marians, uh, they participated in sacrifices, uh, sometimes human sacrifices, which happened here to please the polytheistic gods of the Americas. Um... They also made contributions to map writing and science. So they made calendars, they tracked ritual cycles, um, so the, and they believed humanity's survival was threatened every 15 to years when their two calendars coincided. Um, as we know, we're still here, that didn't happen, but um, they were very, very worried about that and had to prepare for that. Um, they also made astronomical observations. Um, they incorporated the concept of zero and they even did some hieroglyphic inscriptions, which is kind of odd since that's sort of happened in ancient Egypt. 
but they have they did this sort of, same sort of like inscriptions on um, monuments. Um, scribes recorded aspects of public life, religious beliefs, and made biographies of rulers. So that's sort of how we know what happened there today. And the decline of the Mayan civilization was basically the cities were destroyed. Um, and this was preceded by urban decline, social conflict, increased warfare, all of those things. But after the cities were destroyed, they could never really get back on their feet again because eventually the Europeans came and that did not go well for any of the civilizations in the Americas. So there was no way for them to get back up on their feet. So that was kind of a lot. Um, but now we can move on to key concept 2.2.2. Remember all those key empires that I talked about. Definitely remember those. Um, so two, empires and states developed new techniques of imperial administration based in part on the success of earlier political forms. A, in order to organize their subjects in many regions, imperial rulers created administrative institutions, including centralized governments, as well as elaborate legal systems and bureaucracies. So this goes back to all the things, um, the Marian, they had a very centralized government and that worked for a very long time for them, led to their uh, stability. Uh, the Han Empire, they had a whole testing system to decide who got to be in their bureaucracy, and that was, that really helped them um, you know, organize their subjects and really have a strong empire. And um, a lot of, like, the the Romans, they did a really good job of having, like, an elaborate legal system. They had a lot of uh, laws in place for their citizens, as well as, um, like, the Qin, I guess. They had a lot of laws in place. Um, but yeah, all these regions, like, they could, because of their administrative efficiencies for a while at least because their inefficiencies which actually led to their downfall um, but this helped them organize their subject and run a really good empire um, b imperial governments promoted trade and protected military power over larger areas using a variety of techniques including issuing currencies diplomacy developing supply lines building fortifications um, defense walls and roads, drawing new groups of military officers and soldiers from local populations or conquered populations. Um, yeah, so, well, definitely in, like, the, uh, the Romans, they, um, built walls and roads kind of all over the place, um, and this, uh, sort of, that's what helped, led to, like, Pax Romana, because they projected their military power over larger areas, and, by developing like the supply line, the trading, and again the roads, um, that's how they projected their government over a large space of land. Um, not other, you know, they conquered a lot, and again, like Alexander the Great, he uh, did that a lot, but he really just did that because he was very militarily powerful. But and they uh, put together um, soldiers from like local populations or conquered populations. So, Alexander the Great took soldiers, you know, a lot of them were probably Greek, even though he was not even Greek. So, things like that. So, key concept 2.2.3, a unique social and economic dimensions developed in, an in imperial societies in Afro-Eurasia and the Americas. Imperial cities served as centers of trade, public performance of religious rituals, and political administration for states and empires. 
So all these uh, imperial cities, um, Persopolis, we talked about that um, a little bit. Uh, Shang'an, we're going to talk about that right now. So Shang'an, this was the Han capital. And it's not a really ideal location um, because the, like this could house the bureaucracy and kind of extend over the entire nation as well as like have the center for trade. And this area continued to be a capital for a long time throughout uh, Chinese history. A lot of a lot of empires that were located in this area used Shang'an, Shang'an's area. Um, so yeah, the bureaucracy was housed here, and the decisions were made for the entire empire. And this also really helped with um, the trade of the Han Empire because merchants could, you know, come to Shang'an, collaborate there. That was a great place for foreign merchants as well as um, the actual Han peoples. So Shang'an was like a great. Uh, city for the Han Empire because it served as center of trade and political administration. Um, Patula Patura, um, Athens, we talked about that a little bit. Uh, big science, democracy kind of people. Carthage, that's in Phoenicia. Uh, Rome, we talked about Rome a lot. That was, I mean, if, I, if I'm talking about the Roman Empire, Rome is the capital and the, you know, big city. But they had probably plenty of different centers of trade. Um, and then as well as Alexandria, Constantinople, we're going to talk about a little bit in the next period. And Teotihuacan, which we just talked about. Now, 2.2.3.V, the social structures of empires displayed hierarchies that included cultivators, laborers, slaves, artisans, merchants, elites, or case groups. So yeah, a lot of these things arose during this period um, a lot of slaves and a lot of the empires that we talked about, not slavery like you think, um, the American slavery by the Europeans or, Af or African slaveries in the, in the Americas, um, it wasn't, I don't, I don't want to say like racism at this time, um, but slavery was still very involved in these societies, but they're mostly, uh, people from the actual societies that, were the slaves in them. They weren't taken from other societies during this time. Um, yeah, merchants started to trade on some of the trade routes we're going to talk about next. And I think um, an important thing to point out is that merchants during this time um, in Confucianism in the Han Empire were not seen um, as they were in later periods. They were seen as almost inferior to other people. They were inferior to the elites. They weren't doing the right thing. Um, it kind of went against Confucianism. So that's kind of their belief then, but, you know, throughout history, merchants become more and more important. Um, there's definitely that elite group, uh, especially in Han China, the elites uh, make up the bureaucracy, the gentries, uh, which we talked about, and case groups are still persisting. Um, there's still religions with very stratified social structures, as well as just general societies and empires with those really stratified social structures during this time. C. Imperial societies relied on a range of methods to maintain the production of food and provide rewards for the loyalty of elites. Um, illustrative examples and methods of ensuring production and social hierarchy. Um, we kind of talked about slavery just a minute ago. Uh, yeah, I just remember that these are people actually from these societies. And a lot of the elites did have slaves. Um, and corvée labor is basically really just like unpaid labor. So a lot like slavery where people... Uh, do a lot of work and they have to do a lot of hard labor and they do not get paid for it. 
um, D, the patriarchy continues. Um, this is seen throughout history. This is seen started in period one, already mentioned it in all the um, empire societies that we talked about. The patriarchy is well and there. This is uh, persistent. Um, some In some cultures, more than ever, is very, you know, definitely in Confucianism and like filial piety. Um, that's definitely there. But yeah, patriarchy is very... Sh- is shaping gender roles and family relations a lot during this time. For 2.2.4, the Roman, Han, Persian, Mauryan, and Gupta empires encounter political, cultural, and administrative difficulties that they could not manage, which eventually led to their decline and collapse and transformation into successor empire or states. So A, through excessive mobilization of resources, which we talked about in the Persian Empire, erosion of established political institutions, weak leadership, economic changes, imperial governments generated by social tensions, and created economic difficulties by concentrating too much wealth in the hands of the elites. So yeah, during this time, elites had a lot of the power. But there's a lot of, all the themes kind of go in this subject, and All five of these empires kind of fell for similar reasons. So while each of them is specific to each empire and what happened, um, they are very similar in theme. For example, in all of them, the central government weakened. There was a lack of strong successors and administrative inefficiencies. Um, Also, governments began to have trouble with tax collection And trade routes became less and less used, and trade advantages disappeared. Now, these are reinvigorated in period three, but for now, in the fall of these classical age empires, they were used a little bit less. Um, There were less resources available because the empires had sort of overreached, and they were very widespread. Uh, Citizens got very upset. There was a lot of internal uprisings, internal rebellions. Um, This also led to the decline in the popularity with the leaders, which goes back to kind of the weak leader thing. Um, There was also continuous invasions from other empires, uh, as well as disease spread. So all of these reasons combined contributed to the falling of all of the classical age empires and ushered in the new empires we're going to talk about next period. B. Security issues along their frontiers, including the threat of invasions, challenge imperial imperial authority. So this was one of the big reasons that these classical age empires declined. And I want to just highlight two of them really fast. Um, the White Huns, uh, they were a nomad group in Central Asia, and they attacked both the Han, I believe, as well as the Gupta Empire. So this contributed to the fall of both these empires. And just general like outside attacks, outside forces kind of threatening them and invading them that really helped lead to the fall of them. Um, especially, another one especially for the Han Empire, uh, the Xiongnu, they were pastoral nomads that lived to the west of China, and they repeatedly attacked them. Um, Hans attacked and invaded them back, um, and the China, China began to build the Great Wall of China to kind of defend against this, but this was further lot by um, other uh, empires after this, but really the Xiongnu invasions contributed to the fall of the Han dynasty immensely. All right, yay, on to key concept 2.3, which
with the organization of large-scale empires, transregional trade intensified, leading to the creation of extensive networks, commercial, and cultural exchange. So keep uh, 2.3 is really a lot about the trade routes that emerge at this time, and key concept 2.3.1 is all about that. Um, I don't really want to read that key concept right there. Hopefully you guys have it in front of you. Um, but basically, it is all about the four major trade routes of this time, and the, and these trade routes actually continued uh, throughout history. So these are these are major things to know right here, and they are the Silk Road, the Trans-Saharan Trade Route, the Indian Ocean Maritime Trade, as well as the Mediterranean Sea Trade. Um, so the first one we're going to start with is the Silk Road. Um, this opened and originated in Central Asia. Um, it was a route over for parts of Asia and Europe. And there was a large trade of silk and spices from China, India, and Southeast Asia that went to Central Asia, Japan, Arabia, and the Roman Empire. So a lot of the main goods, silk and spices. Um, this trade route facilitated the spread of a lot of religions. It helped spread Buddhism, Hinduism, and Christianity. So all of these religions spread along the Silk Road. Um, a lot of technology diffused on this trade route too. A lot of the earliest technologies, such as silk spinning, paper making, printing with movable type and gunpowder, as well as uh, technologies were created that made trading easier such as the stirrup development people could ride horses a lot easier now and the use of caravans as well as the development of Karen Sarai's um, which are places where people could kind of stop and take a rest on the trade routes um, they also bred some kind of like super camels to go on these trade routes and these camels were like huge and they could travel all across the Silk Road and also in the Trans-Saharan Desert, like that's what kind of made them supers that they could withstand all those different uh, climates and terrains. So that, that's that's pretty cool. Next, let's do the Indian Ocean Maritime System. Um, so this during this time was the dominant network of trade in terms of volume, the number of people involved, and the interactions of various cultures. This was very large during this time. Um, and if you didn't know, this was, like, in the Indian Ocean, kind of, like, where Southeast Asia is, and, like, started between the, um, East Coast of Africa, um, South Asia, all places like that, and China as well got involved. Um, monsoons determined when the trade could happen, so the monsoon winds and seasons determined when people could sail and how long people had to stay in certain places. Um, a technology developed that helped this um, helped people sail against these winds later, and we're going to talk about that in the next key concept part. Um, on this route, they traded timber, ivory, spices, just like the Silk Road, cotton textiles, and other things that would be difficult to move on land. So this trade was really beneficial because unlike the Silk Road, there was boats and water and things that couldn't really be moved on land, heavy things that couldn't be moved, were able to be traded on this route. Um, originally, this trade route was free of a domination by a state or an empire. It was pretty equal um, by everyone who traded on it. Um, obviously, hopefully, as you know, this changed later as the 
uh, Portuguese, the Dutch, Europeans got involved in this trade because it is, you know, a lot of trade going on along here. A lot of chances to get some goods and later some money and things like that. So Europe definitely got involved in period four. Um, there were many ports in southeastern Asia. And this trade route really fostered idea formation um, because of the long distance trading and the monsoon winds, which made people had to stay in certain places for a while, um, people could develop the ideas of other places and bring them back to their own. And this is where people could learn about a lot about religions and cultures and ways of lives of other people. Next, the Trans-Saharan trade routes. Um, this really hit its height in period three, so I'm just going to touch on it now. And we're going to talk about a lot more of it later. Um, and especially the influences of Islam in this trade route and how it spread Islam. So, but to begin, this trade route actually did spread Islam in North and West Africa. That's all we need to know for now. In period three, I'm going to go more in depth about that. Um, there were caravan crossings of the Sahara Desert, and this increased the trade in gold, salt, ivory, and slaves. Um, salt was a very important thing during this time because there was no refrigeration and a lot of salt was really the only thing that could keep meat from spoiling. So salt was a very, very valuable item that was traded on this trade route. Um, empires began emerging in these areas because of the trading. Uh, camels were used for transportation. And artifacts could travel further because of this. Um, at the height of this, a pound of gold could be traded for a pound of salt. So think of how valuable you probably think gold is today and how invaluable you think salt is. Uh, during this time, like I said, salt was very, very valuable. So you had to trade, pretty much you had to trade gold to get this valuable item. Um, the domestication of the camel made this trade a lot easier. And camel saddles helped people ride camels and control them and carry really heavy loads. That was very helpful on this trade route as well. Uh, finally, for the Mediterranean trade network, um, the Mediterranean ports in Syria and Palestine, they had access to the Indian markets. So you can start kind of envisioning like a connection between these trade routes and the different places in um, Afro Eurasia. Um, this really prospered under the height of the Roman Empire, however, declined when the Roman Empire fell. Um, this picks back up later in period three when uh, some things emerge, like the Byzantines and the Italian city-states. But when the Rome was declining, uh, this was on the decline too. Um, this trade route, unlike the Indian Ocean trade, this was dominated originally by the Phoenicians and then the Romans. Uh, they really controlled what went on on these trade routes. Um, and this, again, sort of connected the Silk Road to Europe. So that one, you know, the Silk Road was very prosperous during this time, but the Mediterranean Sea trade was controlled by the Romans, so they could, the Romans could kind of get the goods from the end of the Silk Road. So now we have Key Concept 2.3.2, new technologies facilitated long-distance communication and exchange. So I touched on a lot of these technologies. Uh, the first one talks about the use of domesticated pack animals. So I talked about the uh, camels and then 
the development of stirrups uh, that helped to control horses and development of the camel saddle which helped people ride camels as well as put heavy lo uh, carry heavy loads uh, through the use of camels um, also the use of caravans that helped transport uh, goods long distances and the um, when caravanserais when they arose that was also a very helpful thing for rest and uh, replenishment and things like that along the trade routes um, as well as technologies diffused so some technologies helped trade but the technologies that I talked about that diffused on the silk road kind of um, silk spinning things like that um, those diffused along these trade routes uh, B, innovations in maritime technologies as well as advanced knowledge of monsoon winds stimulated exchanges along maritime routes from East Africa and East Asia. So the thing I was going to talk about, what I mentioned when I was talking about the monsoon winds, is the invention of the Latin sails. So these sails that were made in this period, uh, they allowed for the sailing against the monsoon winds. So before the invention of this, people had to wait and could not um, trade during certain times of the year. Um, this solved this and this helped trading uh, go on a lot more in different times of the year. And this, the use of the Latin sail arose here but continued to be used um, throughout period three and period four and started to be used by even other uh, countries eventually. So this is a very, very beneficial way of sailing. Finally, key concept 2.3.3, alongside the trade in goods, the exchange of people, technology, religious and cultural beliefs, food crops, domesticated animals, and disease pathogens developed across extensive networks of communication and exchange. So there were a lot of uh, byproducts of these trade routes. A, the spread of crops, including rice and cotton from South Asia to the Middle East, encouraged changes in farming and irrigation techniques. Um, so the one I want to focus on is the not system. This is these were like underground channels uh, that were used to transport water from the underground, like maybe a water well, um, to the surface for irrigation and drinking. So this acted as a underground sort of water duct, or sorry, aqueduct. Um, and yeah, this really helped irrigation practices, uh, drinking water be brought to the surface and helped these societies have water available to them. So um, as crops spread, as people needed more water to you know, uh, do agriculture, um, the, things like the Quinault system developed to make things easier for them. And you know, throughout history, people continuously develop things to make their livelihoods easier. The things they need to live off of, of technologies developed to make those things easier. Um, the spread of uh, sorry, B, the spread of disease pathogens diminished urban populations and contributed to the decline of some empires, including the Roman and the Han. So I sort of touched on this when we talked about our decline of classical age empires. Um, and this is another reason why all of these empires declined. Now, since Africa is a little more interconnected because of the trade routes we talked about, um, disease is a byproduct of those trade routes as merchants travel as goods spread uh, diseases spread along with it and as you hopefully know when you haven't been exposed to a disease and then a population is exposed to them it can spread very very fast because your immune system is not adapted to it yet it has no memory of it um, so that's kind of what happened here 
um, in the Roman and the Han, uh, diseases arrived that they probably likely hadn't seen before, or just diseases arrived from the natural trading, and um, this killed off a lot of people, and as you know, epidemics can take a large toll on societies and these empires, and ultimately it led to their decline. And C, religious and cultural traditions, including Christianity, Hinduism, and Buddhism, were transformed as they spread partly as a result of syncretism. So, like I said, these trade routes uh, facilitated the spread of a lot of these uh, religions that arose in separate places. And as they spread, they did not stay completely the same. Um, they transformed um, a lot of times to help people's own beliefs sort of fit into these beliefs. And sometimes even new belief systems or different beliefs arose because of the combining of those beliefs. So a lot of beliefs, um, like traditional beliefs, would combine with Christianity or something when it spread. So people didn't completely drop what they already believed, but with these new kind of emerging religions, people would start to adopt these. And then that's sort of where the syncretism occurred, where the blending of the Christian ideals and the traditional ideals would occur. Uh, maybe an example, when Buddhism uh, spread to China, there was a more like kind of modern version of Buddhism there. Um, Mahayana Buddhism with the Bodhisattvas and things like that, which I, I believe I've mentioned. And um, one of the things that happened in China is Buddha was depicted as Chinese. So that made it easier for the Chinese people to accept that uh, religion into their own culture. So um, a lot of Chinese people became Buddhist during this time and kind of combined that their traditional beliefs um, as well as their like Confucian philosophy uh, with that religion. Um, Buddhism isn't as prevalent in China today, but during this time, that was sort of how it spread into China. Okay, and that is all for period two. Uh, that was kind of long, um, but I hope you got something out of that. I hope you learned something, and I hope you're starting to learn how to decode, I guess, these key concepts. Um, I am Sydney, and the next one will be on period three. Bye!